Have you ever had others spread false information about you very publicly? Did they do so in Sports Illustrated? How would you handle that? Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! The questions that I just asked may be hypothetical for you and me, but not for my guest today in the bullpen. David Nilsson was a National League All-Star in 1999, won a silver medal in the 2004 Olympics, and has also played in the World Baseball Classic. He is the number one Australian-born player ever to play Major League Baseball. Far more importantly, he's a brother in Christ, and I'm privileged to count him my friend. David, thanks for joining me in the bullpen today. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this, and uh, I'm glad we finally uh, were able to put it together. So I want to start, I want to back up. I want to really get to where you are today and what you're doing with the Australian national team, but I want to back up to your youth because I know that there were one or two players from Australia back in the 1870s or something that played Major League Baseball. But since that time, until you and some others of your generation, nobody ever had. So first of all, when did you start playing baseball and then was there any point in time early that you even thought about Major League Baseball, or was that something that just seemed like, well, that'll never happen? You know, when I reflect on, on that question, um, it's, it's really it's quite amazing. I, I, my, my father was a very good sportsman. I have three, three older brothers, so um, we were always playing sport. That was our whole life. And, and really, from the time I can remember, baseball was my number one sport, Um but not like an American kid. It was more so dad. Dad's journey was about building um, clubs, trying to get teams together for kids to play. And he, he really was instrumental just in building interest in the sport growing up. So I, I grew up, you know, the only kid in the school that played baseball or even knew about baseball. Um, and that was kind of my journey. So um, looking back, at it, you know, I may have played 10 or 12 games in baseball a year. Didn't see any on TV, nothing in the papers, um, you know, but, but that was just it. Um, when I was probably 10, 12 years old, um, you know, baseball is this thing on the moon. It was just so far away. It wasn't even, couldn't really comprehend it. And then, and then um, you know, started growing up. I just wanted to be like my brothers. I wanted to <clears throat> play with my brothers. Um, they were five, seven, ten years older than me and, I, I sort of just grew up following them around, wanting to play on their their teams and their their national team, their, their state teams that played in national tournaments. So that was kind of my my goal. And then uh, when I was fourteen, an American coach came over and was coaching their team. He was very influential, and then turned them into a very good team. And and you know then he started talking about professional baseball. And uh, again, at the time. I remember being 15, maybe staying up to two in the morning to watch 
on a Saturday that have CNN was on for an hour. And I remember I'd sit there. It was the only channel on at that time of night. And I'd sit there till two in the morning because there might be a baseball highlight. And my passion for baseball was because I couldn't find it anywhere. I didn't have anywhere. It's totally different than my son now, who's a 24 seven passion for baseball because there's access to everything. He has information, uh, at every level about every player. And I've told you before, he, he knows more about the major leagues than I did when I broke in and he's 11 years old. So <laughs> um, gr- growing up was, I look back and it's just amazing to think. Um, and, and another thing I played in a national tournament, 12 years old, probably similar to a little league tournament. I just turned 10 and I was playing on this 12 and under team. And we played against the team from Victoria and there was this really big, tall, left-handed guy, about two foot tall than everyone else. You know, fast forward 10, 11 years, and I'm catching him in the big leagues, Graham Lloyd. Yeah. It's just a remarkable when I look back at um, how God just lined everything up. And so it sounds like at about 14 or 15, at least playing professional baseball in the States came on the radar to some degree. And then you were about, what, 16 or so when you actually came to the United States as an amateur and got involved in some some baseball from an amateur standpoint? Yeah, so there was no exposure to professional scouts in Australia. My, my oldest brother, Bob, when I was <laughs> seven years old, he signed a contract with the Cincinnati Reds. That, that's a remarkable story. He went over, he was 17. He went over, I think he may have lasted a spring training, and, and he was back before I knew it. Um, and my, my, my next eldest brother, or my second eldest brother, Gary, when I was 12 or 13, signed a minor league contract with the Detroit Tigers. So uh, probably around that time, um, because he was a little bit close to my age, seven years older than me, and um, Detroit were in the 1984 World Series, and so he was in their organization at the time. Mm. And so he would come back and, and I'd go through his luggage and he'd have a Detroit Tiger magazine or whatever, whatever I just, I clung to, I could tell you every player on the 84 Tigers team. So um, probably around that time combination with uh, my professional coach, that the coach from America. Now, now saying that I had two, two older brothers play professionally probably sounds like an American family, but I can, I can tell you it, it's just a remarkable story. Um, my my eldest brother, son in Cincinnati, a scout, saw him play over here, and my, my other brother Gary went and played in a, in a city league in Chicago when he was twenty or twenty one. So, so um, I even with having two brothers in minor league baseball, I, I knew nothing about it. I, I they, they had nothing for me, you know. So, um, around fourteen was fifteen, maybe where it was really. Um, there's something I wanted to do, but I knew nothing about it, Mark. I knew nothing. And then you said your brother played for a team in Chicago, but you played also prior to signing professionally. I think the year before you signed professionally, you also did the same thing, didn't you? Yeah, well, the, the team that my, my brothers played for was a state team, and they'd won two or three national championships. All I wanted to do was play on that team. So I just turned 16. I was maybe a month into being 16 years old, and – and that team took a trip to the States. It was the first time it ever happened. It was like a two-week end-of-season tour. Where, and, but they played against teams like USC and ASU. We played uh, minor league games against o- uh, Oakland A-ball team. We played a triple-A 
AAA team um, for the Angels. And, you know, it was, I look back, it was a remarkable trip. So I went on that and um, I, I did good. And the coach asked me to stay back and, and I stayed in Chicago for a couple of months. So that was really my first introduction to America. Again, there's no, there's no mobile phones or fax or anything like that back then. So it was a, it was a daunting, it was a daunting uh, experience that, you know, being from Australia, which was a long way away, removed from the rest of the world, you, you get little windows of opportunity. You either take them or you don't. So it was a no-brainer. Yeah, and I want to talk, especially once you come over, if you will, to stay, to be here for an extended period of time professionally in 87. I want to talk about <laughs> about what kind of a culture shock that was. But you mentioned USC, and before we started this interview, you told me a story, and you have to tell that story. Yeah, well, I would just turn. I just turned sixteen. I'd already been working. I left school when I was uh, fifteen after grade ten. Back back in Australia, then you'd leave school, you'd get an apprenticeship, and so I, I was in the workforce. I was sixteen years old, and so school wasn't really at the front of my mind. We played a game in USC at at the USC, and then afterwards we went up to their little function room and. Uh, and it was pretty. It's pretty awesome. But this this older guy came to came to me. You know, I'm 16, hanging around adults. I mean, the, the other guys on my team are 28, 29, 30, 24. So I'm 16. There's two other young kids. So we're just kind of, you know, trying to take it all in and not get in, in their way. And, and this old guy comes up and says, "Hey, hell of a ball player. How would you like to come to USC?" And I was like. No, nah, look, I have no interest, no thanks, I'm good. And um, I remember one of the players on our team, uh, he was an American guy, and his jaw dropped because, as I come to find out, that was a guy named Rod Dado. <laughs> so, you know, I had no idea. It didn't bother me at the time, but it's it's, it's always funny when I look back how, how young and naive and how uh, uninterested in college I was or education that, you know, Rod Dado in the middle of his prime at USC was trying to recruit me personally and i just pretty much didn't even look at him and just said no get out of here you blew off a, a college baseball coach who's in the hall of fame yeah. that's awesome <laughs> all right so after you after you blew off a, a hall of fame baseball coach the next year you signed mm-hmm. professionally and so now you come to the states for an even more extended period of time to play professionally now unlike latino players you don't have the language barrier but I'm, I'm going to still assume it was a pretty big culture shock for you. Yeah, I think I think what really helped me through that, Mark, was the year before when I when I spent three months or a few months in Chicago. Um, that really dealt with the first round of homesickness. That really dealt with just that first first experience of being across the world with with no contact. And um, you know, one thing that was really driving me, my, my two brothers. Had signed previously, they had they had come back pretty much straight away. It's just too hard from being being across the world, and um, so that really that really drove me. Uh, it was it was a big culture shock, but by the time I got to seventeen, I was just ready. I was just hungry to get over there and find out and fit in. And I, I'd grown up being around people five, ten years older than me, so and playing with people five and ten years older than me. So so come and do a a place where I was around the old people didn't phase me at all. But with all that, all that said and done, yeah, it was, uh, it was difficult, you know, being, um, not being able to call your parents could cost too much money or whatever it was. And, um, 
I think I'd maybe call them once every two weeks and that was it. And, you know, to see the other, other players have their, their families around and bringing in stuff from home to help them feel good. Was, I mean, that was difficult, but you know, when you, when you come from Australia, that's just part of it. You know? And even today, even with the world being a lot smaller, there's still a lot of obstacles that Australians have to deal with that, that no one will really understand because we, we speak the language and, for the most part, we sound normal and fit in. Yeah, I mean, you think about it. Here here we are right now. It's Monday night for me. It's Tuesday morning for you. And we're on a Zoom video call. Mm. None of that was available. Like you said, not even cell phones, faxes, whatever. None of that was available. And I think, especially, obviously, if you're younger, but even if you're older like us, it, it's kind of hard to remember that. You remember it more because it was far more of an issue for you. We both got into pro ball the same year, 1987, but it was a bigger issue for you because I might have been uh, across, you know, I, I, my first year I was in Seattle, so I was a long way from Michigan. But that's not like being in the United States from Australia. Now, I want to talk about your major league career here in a minute, but something did happen, something very important happened after you came to the States to play professional baseball. You were exposed to something that, at least to your knowledge, you didn't have much, if any, exposure to prior to coming here and playing professional baseball, and that would be the gospel. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, my first my first recollection of being exposed to the gospel was, I think, 1990. You know, I'm, I'm sure in America, probably prior to that, I'm sure I'd probably been exposed to it, but, and, and, uh, growing up in Australia, I, I just don't recall at any level being exposed to, to the gospel. And in 1990, um, I was on a team in Stockton, California, where, where God just surrounded me with a lot of Christians. And, and I really hit off, hit off with them and really, really enjoyed their company. And, and, uh, you know, they were very strong in spending time and investing a lot of time in me. Um, I, I roomed with, uh, Cal Eldred, who was a first-round pick of the Brewers the year before. Chris Bander was my manager, and he was conducting Bible studies at his house and, and welcoming all the players. So um, unlike now, back back in 1990, when you know when you had a chance for free feed as a minor league player, you would do anything to get there. So, you know, he could have been doing anything. I was going for the free food, right? <laughs> sure. So, so um, you know, so I think that's where we're just – I started to hear the gospel, um, you know, for the first time and, and I room with Cal the next year and had other guys around me. So, so hearing the gospel started to become comfortable. I got to the big leagues in 92 and, and, you know, while God was sort of pricking my spirit, you know, I was distracted with a lot of other things, a lot of, a lot of emotions and a lot of, uh, a lot happens when you get to the big leagues and especially being from a country is a pretty big news back here. So, so for a few years, I, I kind of, you know, was on, on my own path or, or still on my own path. And in 95, um, at a Bible study in Seattle, um, you know, God just touched my heart and grabbed it out to me and I gave my life to Christ there. So um, from 95, I've been a Christian and, uh, yeah, that was that was how what God used to, to get my attention. Yeah, that's a great story. Now, I'm going to remove that because I'm about to ask a question, actually, a two-part question, which technically you're not supposed to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. But you need to eliminate that because that would be number one. But my question is this. As you look back on your major league career, what would you say 
the best thing that happened to you or the thing that you enjoyed the most about being a Major League Baseball player? And then the second half, what would you say would be the worst thing or the thing that you enjoyed the least about being a Major League Baseball player? Really difficult, really difficult to answer. The more I'm asked this question, the more confused I get. Mm. I mean, there are so many. The, the older you get, the the more you enjoy the real simple things of being in the major leagues and being treated at that level. Um, and so I miss the whole entire thing of being spoiled, having people, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, doing whatever you need whenever you want it done. I mean, that's a pretty – that's a pretty rare period of your life to have people falling over backwards for you. So um, I, I don't think that's what you're asking me. I, look, I, I, I just enjoyed the competition, getting to the big leagues with, with the backstory of being from Australia, with, with the whole country following me and what that meant at a whole bunch of different levels. Just, just getting to the big leagues um, was a really special uh, achievement and a special moment for me. So um that that kind of is always something I say along the way, you know, played with and against a lot of great players, um, had some really good, good moments. So I, I, it's hard to kind of separate that being selected in the all-star game in 99 was, was good because, um, you know, we weren't really the best team at the time. So, um, you know, unlike now where, where MLB has done a great job to make sure that, you know, anyone that, is doing good is selected on the roster. I think the roster has eight or nine or 12 more players on it. Now I, I had a real good chance in 94, I had a good chance in 96. And so I, I didn't really see myself making an all-star team playing for the Brewers. So when I made 99, that was, again, that was kind of for myself. I thought I was a pretty decent player, but that kind of was just good, good in my own spirit to, to know that I kind of had that type of talent and being recognized. Um, yeah, I don't even know if I answered your question, but yeah, yeah, I think you do. You know, that's kind of how I look back on everything. I just enjoyed the whole experience. And now, what about the second half? The worst, or the thing that you enjoyed the least, or maybe didn't enjoy at all about being a major league baseball player? You know, as a catcher, as as a position player, and I'm sure as a pitcher, you experience the same things. But there are times when you take the field. <clears throat> there are times when you take the field during the course of every season where, you know, you, you just, you're not ready physically mm. and you just have to go out and battle. That's part of being a major league player is you just, th- there's a large part of the season where you just got to get out there and you just got to get your nose dirty and just, you have to act like everything's good. You have to act <laughs> like, um, you don't, you don't let people know that you, you're not feeling good. But some of them days when you, when, when I took the field as a catcher, or playing, playing the outfield in 98 when I had a couple of knee surgeries when I, I just knew I wasn't capable and, you know, performing at a at a level or at a, not performing at a level in front of a lot of people and letting people down, I think that that, that was tough when you know you're going to take the field and part of a team, part of an organisation and, and knowing, knowing that you don't have near enough, mm. I think that was tough. I would say maybe I experienced it a little bit, but I don't think anybody experiences it like catchers do. I mean, that's just a demanding Mm. physical job, and I can imagine that. Now, you had mentioned just a moment ago about being selected to the All-Star team in 1999, obviously a very high honor. 
But then the following year, 2000, you made a decision. And it's a decision that I'm not sure if anybody that grew up in the United States and that as a young boy wanted to play Major League Baseball would make. But I remember you talking to me about it several years ago. And the mindset that you have, and not only you, but other people in Australia, is far different than what I think all of us, or at least most of us in the States would have. So what decision is it that I'm referring to, and why did you make it? Well, I was a free agent after 99 season, and there's there's a lot of lot of facts around it that haven't been reported, and I think I've mentioned some of them to you, but but I had an opportunity to go play in, in Japan. And, um, you know, from my point of view, being, being from Australia at the time, you know, whether I was playing in Japan, the big leagues or the American big leagues, you know, it really wasn't that much of a difference. I was just, I was a professional baseball player and I was going to play somewhere and, you know, it was just a new experience for me. Growing up in Australia, you, you, you follow national teams. So the opportunity to play for your country is, is a great opportunity that, it, you, you know, the Olympics is a very important in Australia. So um, the emotions towards that was very strong. Um, but the part, of, the part of that whole decision, which was an easy decision for me, the part of that whole decision people don't realize was after the 99 season, I, I wanted 100% to go back to the major leagues. And I thought I'd be going back to the major leagues. And uh, I just didn't get any contract offers. Hmm. So there's a lot of teams showed a lot of a lot of uh, um, interest in me, and you know I I really I think I got four offers at the time, and um, three three weren't even really offers. That you know they were they were twentieth or a thirtieth of probably what I should have been demanding, hmm. and the fourth the fourth offer was um, probably a tenth of what was market value, but they said, if we don't like you, we can um, release you in spring. So I think what had happened in 99, there was a, I was the cover of Sports Illustrated and there was a story, will he, won't he go to the Olympics? And, and it took a life of its own and it wasn't my story. I, I was never the one pushing that story. It was like being in a, in a hurricane. I was in the middle of it. It was all quiet around me, but everyone else wanted to talk about it during the 99 season. I had, other managers saying, how could he do it? How could he? And it just, it just wasn't my story. So I think probably all the innuendo may have created a lot of doubt amongst owners, I'm guessing. And um, if you're an owner and you, you, you want to fork out some money for a player, you probably want to feel like they're all in. And I think as I reflect, there's probably a lot of doubt around my commitment. Um, Again, there wasn't, um, the ease of social media where you can communicate. Mm-hmm. I'm a slightly introverted person, so I never bothered defending any of the stories. I couldn't care less about what people wrote about me. But in hindsight, it probably didn't work for me. Um, you know, winter meetings weren't the show that they are now. Um, and probably, I probably should have gone to winter meetings and sat in front of people. And, and um, in hindsight, it probably would have, would have worked out different. But that didn't happen. And then, in January, I got um, a team from Japan reached out to me and said, we'd like to pay X amount of dollars and we'll give you off for the Olympics. So I was like, bit of a no-brainer, really. Sure. Um, and I went down that road and had a wonderful experience in Japan, even though I 
I was terrible. If you ever seen the movie Mr. Baseball, that was me. <laughs> same team, same field. I my interpreter was on the set of that movie teaching that act, and um, the manager I played for was was what that movie character was built around. So I experienced that firsthand, and then I got to come back and play in the Olympics, and um, had a wonderful experience. That team played poorly, which was disappointing, but yeah, really life changing, and and um, you know I, I sort of always do the what if I would have if I would have gone back to America but um things have worked out really well and how many times did you play in the Olympics it was more than the one time right I yeah well 2000 as I alluded we didn't play well so 2004 was sort of about getting the band back together and doing it right you know we we had in 1999 we'd won a world world cup 12 months before so we're in a really good position to perform at the Sydney Olympics and uh USA beat Cuba. We ended up finishing seventh, and um, Tommy Lasorda had that USA team prime. But we we really um, we really underperformed. And I think the pressure the pressure of being a hometown Olympics for a lot of the players was too too big. It was sure. too too big a, a a weight to carry for a lot of the guys. For someone like myself, a major league player, deal with that on a daily basis. A lot of these guys, you know, they're in the minor league back then, playing in front of. 500, 1,000 people, and then they're in their hometown with expectations playing in front of 40,000 people with millions of fans going all around the world. So talent-wise, we were good, um, but we just couldn't carry the load mentally. So we got the band back together again, so to speak, and and we really prepared for a few years, and we we got the silver medal in Athens, which was was bittersweet because um, we were primed for the gold and – you know, that didn't happen. So, but um, being a silver medalist, as I've learned, is a pretty cool thing and yes, um, a pretty big deal. It's almost like having a World Series ring. Yes, it is. Now, you, you brought up the national team, and I, I want to go there because you're involved right now, and I want to hear what you are doing mm-hmm. and what your goals are with the Australian national team. But before we get to that, there is an interesting connection between you and the only player elected to the Hall of Fame from this year's ballot, David Ortiz. What is that connection? Yes, I think it was 2003, January of 2003, possibly 2002. My memory says 2003. Um, The Red Sox had reached out to me. I'd taken a year off and um, was probably in better better headspace. And um, Theo Epstein had just taken over the Red Sox and, and they reached out to me through through Craig Shipley and, and were trying to get me to come and play and I had conversations with them. Uh, long story short, I, I signed a I signed a contract with them to go there and try, you know, basically give it a shot in the spring and um, play first, bit of DH and, you know, back up Veritech as the catcher. And uh, so it's kind of, from my point of view, Craig made it very easy for me you know, no pressure. And I sort of, so I signed the contract and I was really excited to go. And I thought I was excited to go, but, um, and then two weeks later, um, this guy, a Pedro recruited a friend of his who couldn't get a job at the time. And, and I won't say names, but, um, someone was sitting on my couch in my house two years before speaking about this individual saying how the team he played for, no one liked him. He had warning track power and, um, so when, when he, who being David Ortiz, <laughs> um, signed with the Red Sox because he couldn't get a job and Pedro 
you know, sort of stepped in as a friend and got him the same contract I had, the same everything, same trying for the same position. Um, it just didn't sit well, and I just thought, you know what, I just I don't have time for this. You know, <laughs> I, I'm I wasn't in a good headspace. Obviously, I wasn't I wasn't mentally where I need to be to play in the big leagues, and uh, so I, I just called Craig. I said, I can't, you know, I just can't do this. I'm, I'm you know, I'm not going to waste everyone's time, and um, you know, and and I kind of I kind of joke a little bit because if I did go have a good spring, you know, maybe Big Poppy never would have existed. You know, so <laughs> maybe he should be giving me some royalties for. But uh, look, I think Red Sox made the right decision, and and I think it worked out well for David Ortiz. Yeah, we'll have to wait for the induction ceremonies to see if he acknowledges <laughs> you're helping his career and in getting into the big leagues. Yeah, I don't think he would even be aware <laughs> of who I am. <laughs> All right. Where I want to end up is where you are now as it regards baseball. You are involved with the national team in Australia, and you have some goals for that team. Talk about what you're doing and, and what you want to do with the Australian national baseball team. Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting. Um, I'm, the, I'm the head coach manager of the national senior team. And we play in world events. We play in, you know, the Major League Baseball, WBC, World Baseball Classic. We play in what's called the Premier 12. Every four years, the top 12-ranked world teams play in a tournament. So, so we're playing against, it's it's kind of a, probably a, what you'd call a 4A tournament. Um, you're playing against the best AAA prospects, if not big leaguers. Obviously, the World Baseball Classic is against, you know, current big leaguers, but the standard of play is, is just, it's, it's a big league, big league standard of play. And, um, you know, so, so with that, because it's competition, the format's different. It's, it's, it's not like anything in professional baseball. And so that really levels the playing field. And we have enough talent here in Australia to actually be the best competition team in the world, the number one team in the world. And when I say that people roll their eyes and laugh, but you mentioned in your podcast, I don't know, a month ago, that every year there, there are kids at every level, there are players at every level that realize they're just not up to the level that, that they're now playing at. And what I can say to you, that's never happened for Team Australia on the world stage. We've never at any time felt we didn't belong on the world stage. We've never. So the strength we have, the strength is our weakness. We have a small number of athletes to choose from. Probably, I'm probably going to be picking from if I'm to be nice, 60 to 70 athletes for the national team where other countries say team USA, they're going to have thousands, tens of thousands of people to choose from. But the strength we have is we really get to build as a team. Players get to experience that environment, you know, more often than not. And when you look at team USA in the world baseball classic, it took them 16 years to win the world baseball classic. Mm. And, when that first started, everyone thought USA would just roll roll over. And that's not how teams work. That's not the way teams function. Um, you know, we played in the Premier 12 as an example. We play in the first round. We get through the first round. We play against Korea, Cuba, and Canada. We get through that first round. And then we get to the second round. We play Team Japan on a Friday night in Tokyo. We, we get back to the hotel at 1.30 in the morning. We have a 12 o'clock day game the next day in the Tokyo Dome against Team Mexico. 12 o'clock day game the next day against Team USA. 
the next night against Team um, Chinese Taipei, this type of event, it's it's like nothing. It's like nothing that you can prepare for professional baseball. So, so I'm on the journey of of trying to make us the number one team in the world. You know, we don't have the names, um, and just preparing athletes for that. So, you know, we just try to prepare our team over a long period of time for that environment. And as, as simple as it may sound, um, your preparation you do for it is, is totally different. There are players that um, play at high levels that, that are, an event like this just doesn't work for them. And so um, so that's where I'm at right now. We A lot of planning goes into it. Our focus right now is 2028, the LA Olympics. Um, hopefully baseball will be in it. But uh, apart from they're looking possibly 2023 next year, we MLB, if they ever get back on track, there's going to be the WBC, mm-hmm. World Baseball Classic 24. We have a Premier 12 again, and um, that's that's the lane I'm in. So, you know, we have a document now, which is an internal document, um, what it takes to win. Um, we've created it's about a 30-page document. I think I might even share with you just the first draft just to give you um, – bit of a background as to what I was talking about, but that document basically outlines every, every facet of of what we're doing with 16 year old kids, 15 year old kids all the way through to identifying them when they're 28 years old. So um, we can have a performance on the world stage. So, so I've set the target of being the number one tournament team in the world. And, and um, that's, that's what I'm doing. And as crazy as it may sound, it's, it's absolutely possible. We before COVID, we were ranked sixth in the world. Um, because of COVID, we didn't get to go to the Olympics, Olympic qualifiers. So I think we've dropped down to ninth now, which is really disappointing. But you know, to think to think we're sixth in the world ahead of <laughs> your sprinklers like go off. Or, <laughs> no, that's that's actually my pool filter. But sorry, but you know, but we're ahead of teams like Cuba and and. Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and, and, and countries that it would blow your mind to think we're ranked ahead of them. Mm. And, and so the point system, you know, it's, it's around international tournaments and um, yeah. So, you know, our, our, our last significant victory was 2019 at uh, Premier 12. We beat team USA, which, which most of those guys on that team are playing in the playoffs, the last year's playoffs. You know, they were, they were triple A guys who had, had had a little bit of big league time and, uh, you know, what a thrill that was to, to beat Team USA, you know. So it sort of shows we have the pieces in that environment to do it. And, um, yeah, it's really enjoyable. It's a really enjoyable journey. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how this uh, how this story unfolds. I wish you the best with that. And, uh, and we'll see. It's a great goal. And uh, you're definitely uh, the, the person to lead the charge to that goal. And we get to watch it unfold. And, see how the national team from Australia does in, in competition against the rest of the world. Nilly, as always, I appreciate the opportunity when we get to ch- talk, and I, and I thank you for, for joining me for this interview in the bullpen. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoy listening every week, and uh, it's great waking up and listening with my son, so thank you. Yeah, you bet. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview, and I hope that you learned a lot. And I will say this, I learned something, something I didn't know before this interview. Now, I've known Nilly since 1997, and we have had conversations about what took place in 2000 
But they always centered more around the fact that for Australians, playing for the national team is kind of the height of what they look to. But he had never told me what Paul Harvey would refer to as the rest of the story until today about the Sports Illustrated article and all that was happening. And I found it interesting and intriguing that he said that while the media was writing this story, he said, it wasn't my story. And he recognized something very important, that the true story, his true story, both then and now, has been written by our sovereign Lord. And so I ask you again what I asked at the beginning. How would you handle that situation? I can say this, I don't believe I would have done nearly as well as David did. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.